Hello and thanks for joining us for the Poverty Research and Policy Podcast from the Institute for Research and Poverty at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm Dave Chancellor. For this, our August 2016 episode, I interviewed Scott Allard, who is a professor at the Evans School of Public Affairs at the University of Washington and a longtime friend and affiliate of IRP. Allard visited us in Madison this spring and gave an IRP seminar talk about the changing geography of poverty in the United States. Professor Allard's latest research, which will be published as a book next year, looks at the perhaps surprising growth of poverty in U.S. suburbs. When we first started talking, I asked him what led him to begin studying suburban poverty, and he told me how it grew out of work he was doing as he was finishing his first book. That book, called Out of Reach, Place Poverty in the New American Welfare State, examined the important role of social service providers in today's social safety net, so food banks, job training, and adult education centers, mental health care, emergency assistance, and so on. He went to follow up with some of the 1,500 social service providers that he'd originally surveyed in Metro Chicago, Los Angeles, and Washington, D.C. But instead of just follow-up conversations, as he describes it, he stumbled into new insights about place and poverty. I went to some of the places I did interviews, telephone interviews, and visited the providers themselves to do some verification of the work, make sure that the surveys were capturing what I thought they would. And I had an appointment in Los Angeles, suburban Los Angeles, with a provider that had participated in service, a food pantry provider, food bank. And as I was driving to the place, it, I remember thinking, it's weird that I'm going to a social service agency in this part of the valley because there's not, this is not where I think poor people are. Like This is not how we've been taught to think about poverty. As we train our scholars, we, we train media, we and our public debates. This is where the Brady Bunch lives. This is what the houses looked like. And then as I started to drive, I started to see check cashing signs and and other kind of symbols or signals of of economic disparity or inequality or hardship. Ellard says that after driving through these neighborhoods, he arrived at the food bank and the executive director met him at the door and said, I'm so glad you're here. We've been puzzling over a number of issues and maybe you can help us. And I said, well, what's going on? She says, well, our caseload has been increasing by 10% every month for the last two years. So this is in like 2006, late 2006 or 2007. So right now, we didn't know the recession was happening. Um, we didn't know there was going to be a housing meltdown yet. And so we go inside, and they have no food in the place. And she's like, I can't keep my, my, I can't keep my shelf stocked. And we're signing up more people for food stamps than ever before. And it was a really interesting conversation. And then if not too long uh uh, before that, Brookings had started to publish some data that talked about the rise of suburban poverty. So these things, this this visit kind of drew my attention to this in a very in a very clear and real way. As a non-resident fellow at Brookings, Allard and his colleague Ben Roth published a report called Strained Suburbs in 2010, which explored the consequences of suburban poverty in Chicago, Los Angeles, and Washington, D.C. And Allard's new book project builds on that report, combining interviews with service providers in the same three metro areas with census data to make sense of this increased need in suburbs. And he spoke of how the data revealed the landmark effects of the Great Recession. And so as I started to pull the data together for this book, you know, then a few years later, so now we're in the kind of 2012, as I start to, to do the analysis and the writing, it's taken, taken a while. I decided I better wait until the recession, you know, we, we've kind of been in recovery for a while, so we can really see what the effect of the recession was. And one of the striking things about the, the, the book project now as, it, as, I'm, as it's finishing up is to see 
how dramatic the increases in poverty were after the recession um, in urban, but particularly and, and most acutely in suburban areas. Ellis says a central finding of the project is that poverty rates in cities and suburbs are at all-time highs despite the economic recovery. It may be surprising, however, that the presence of significant poverty in suburbs is nothing new and predates the Great Recession. But, he says, the growth in suburban poverty accelerated during the Great Recession. This is something that has been present for many years. And when, when you look at the data from the book, in 1990, there are almost as many poor people in suburbs of our largest metro areas as in the cities. And that runs counter to some of our intuitions, but also is kind of a striking contrast to the discussions we were having at the time about urban poverty and concentrated poverty in cities. It turns out poverty in cities hasn't gone away. Poverty in cities has, has gotten much worse in the last 25 years. It's just the rate of change and the both the numeric increases in poverty in suburbs are much worse and the, and the you know, po- increase in poverty rates are much worse in, in suburban areas. It turns out, you know, as, as, as many of us know and understand, Poverty in cities is, you know, is still higher. You know, higher, higher percentage of people in cities are poor, and, and concentrated poverty is worse. It's just the, the the rate of change in suburbs is, is is very different. When we think about how people experience poverty, Allard says that although the lived experience is similar no matter where you are, there are important differences in the realities of suburban poverty. It's a stressful experience. It's an experience that uh, forces one to grapple with hardship, maybe not providing enough food for their family maybe having a hard time making rent payments or, or, or mortgage payments, instability of all kinds, stress, health issues. It's tough. Poverty is a tough, a tough, a tough experience for everybody. In suburbs, I think there are some additional uh, realities that make it a unique or, or, or challenging phenomenon in, in that context. One is there are great distances that people have to travel for, for resources, whether it's food shopping or social services or what have you. And without cars, Many suburbs just don't have uh, adequate public transportation uh, networks. And the second thing that, that is difficult is we think often of suburbs as being the place where there's lots of job growth and job opportunity, and that's still true in many places. But there appears to be a, a pretty significant shift in, in labor market opportunities in suburbs. And so for many low-wage, low-skill workers, it's hard to find work, and it's hard to find work in the, in the immediate community. And that you know, our again, our transit grids are set up to go from suburbs to cities. They're not our public transit grids are not set up to go from suburb to suburb, and so looking for work in suburban areas can be really difficult, and it can can involve really long and, and challenging commutes. I think that makes it different. Now, there are other unique features of being poor in cities that matter, and so you're not trying to say one is better or worse than the other, but but in some ways they're a little bit categorically different. Since there are differences in urban and suburban poverty, definitions matter not only in terms of how to classify different geographic areas, but also about how to define poverty itself. In this project, although it's not perfect, I use the federal poverty measure, the percentage of people or the number of people below the federal poverty line. And then I look at poverty rates and the percentage of, of poor people in a given tract or neighborhood and things like that. There are other ways to define poverty and, and, and are interesting and, and textured, but this is a kind of the data that we collect systematically across space, and so that's what, what I use. The second definition that you might be interested in is how do you define a suburb? There's no official definition of what suburbs are, and the definition varies from study to study. In this study, I use a, a very simple definition, actually. I, I take the Office of Management and Budget's definition of metropolitan areas, identify the primary city that OMB uh, identifies in any very large city. So some places like Minneapolis, St. Paul, the Twin Cities metro area have two big cities. Those are the urban or central city areas or urban centers. 
Uh, and then everything else in the metro area becomes suburban. And I classify suburbs by the age of the housing stock and try to provide a sense of inner ring and outer ring suburbs, mature and new suburbs. But it's a very data-driven definition. And when you go out in the field, you find that these, and you talk to people, you find that these data-driven definitions work for telling a demographic story. But in reality, as many other scholars point out, these definitions are, are contested space. But it's not just scholars who disagree over what's a suburb and what's not. And Allard says he saw this very early on in his research for this project. Yeah, I asked a, a suburban nonprofit service organization, executive from a, a suburban nonprofit service organization, what she thought urban or suburban was in her community. And, and to put it in context, she, she was doing work in an area that was very much like the suburbs of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, or where, you know, where John... Uh, John Hughes filmed all these great 80s, kind of my generation of, of movies about suburban teen angst, right? So these are the affluent suburbs that, that fit our, our kind of intuitive notion of cul-de-sacs with, with, uh, with homes and big backyards and large two-car garages, you know, kind of our, our, the image of our, the American dream. And so I asked this executive, you know, what, you know, what's urban and suburban and you know, how do you think about these definitions? And she kind of points with her hand to, you know, in a particular direction, we'll say east. And she says, this community over here, that's an urban place. And then she goes on to talk about how this is an urban area. And I said, wait a minute, that, this, is a, this is a suburban municipality. It's in the same commuting zone people take from that place. Some of them take the commuter train into town. We're in a suburban county. We're we're we're, we're really in, in places that people would identify as suburban in almost every other definition. Why do you think that's urban? And she started to point to the the problems that the community was having, kind of problems in schools, poverty problems, um, of, and pointed out that this was a place where there were larger numbers of race and ethnic minorities. And so what it what it what it occur, you know what it kind of made clear to me was that. This definition of suburb that I was using, even in suburbs, even with people who work in suburbs, was contested space. And people kind of think about poverty, even in suburbs, as being an urban problem. And so at some level, it kind of underscored why kind of challenging that myth was was important to kind of tell the story that poverty is not just an urban problem. It is a problem of suburbs. And that by classifying all poverty as urban, we actually make it harder for ourselves to marshal resources and solutions uh, to, to solve it. Some of the resources available to combat poverty include public benefits. So in his work for this project, Allard looked at how public benefits responded to increased need in suburbs, particularly after the Great Recession. He focused on three programs, SNAP, formerly food stamps, the Earned Income Tax Credit, or EITC, and Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, which is the Welfare Cash Assistance Program that replaced AFDC. When you look at places, uh, when you look at any urban or suburban county, um, you see that SNAP and the Earned Income Tax Credit have expanded more than actually poverty has expanded in those places. And that um, there are more, and, and actually more than the number of people living near the poverty line has increased. Because these programs serve people who are not only poor, but people who are above, just above the poverty line as well. And, and so, you know, SNAP caseloads have doubled in the last 10 years in, in many counties. EITC caseloads have increased 30, 40 percent in many places, whereas the number of people um, uh, under 150 percent of federal poverty, you know, increased maybe 20, 30 percent. So it's, these programs are keeping up. TANF in most counties has fallen, uh, and many counties has fallen. 
uh, urban and suburban. And in the places where it's increased, it's a very small number of cases. And so overall, the net trend for TANF is that it hasn't been responsive to the geography of poverty, shifts, shifts in the geography of poverty. And that's consistent, again, with the kind of safety net story that we would tell where we'd expect federal programs, federally funded, federally regu- regulated programs that give local places less discretion. They'll be the most responsive programs when poverty starts to move around. The suburban story with these three federal programs largely tracks with the overall U.S. picture, but Allard says we really start to see some differences in safety net coverage between urban and suburban areas when we look at nonprofit human and social services. These programs fill gaps in the public safety net. They provide help to people who aren't eligible for public programs. They provide all kinds of wraparound resources that help people find, keep jobs, achieve greater well-being. They're, they're critical. But that's a highly localized activity, funded mostly by public funds, federal, state, local, but a highly localized activity that's really relying on on community-based nonprofits. And when you look at the data that's available, and it's not perfect data, you want to view it, you know, and I talk about in the book that there's some limitations to the data, but I think it's it's accurate enough to to put out there as a, a good measure of what nonprofit human service organizations are able to do. When you look at it, you see that the median suburban uh, uh, county, again using the county measure of suburbs, has a you know per poor person human service expenditure under a hundred dollars every year. There's very little money to, to provide food assistance, mental health, job training, whatever it is per person. It's almost no money compared to cities which uh, it, you know is about eight hundred dollars a year per poor person to in urban counties, which is, again, not enough money, but it's significantly larger. And then when you look further at the data, you see that almost a quarter of suburban counties have no registered human service nonprofits. And again, it's not because there's no activity, but there's no indigenous organizations doing work in that county that, that register in that county. And so you get a sense that this nonprofit safety net, which is supposed to be so critical to how people find jobs, advance, provide for their families, is under deep duress in most places, but particularly in suburban areas where there are far too few resources and far too few providers. And a person might think that perhaps a way to address the challenge of limited resources in the suburbs is to reallocate resources from urban to suburban areas. But this is a big dilemma because at the end of the day, as I noted before, poverty in cities hasn't gone away. And so part of the game here isn't to reallocate funds to suburbs. It's a zero-sum game at some at some level. We have to find ways to generate new revenue streams and new philanthropy that can target poverty problems outside of cities because we're not going to solve poverty in any place if we, if we start to shift inadequate dollars around uh, and kind of spread them out more thinly over wider areas. It's not going to solve our problems. Ellard says he's often asked why suburban municipalities don't do more in response to poverty, especially since we may think of more localized governments as being most responsive to local changes. We have to put poverty and safety net policy in the context of the competitive pressures that cities and suburbs face. So when you think about how cities and suburbs are nested in in metropolitan areas, they're independent, separate municipalities. They have their own property tax bases that that largely fund a lot of what they do. They may collect sales tax as well. Um, But, you know, cities, you you know, emerge... Uh, as municipalities, you know, over the last several hundred years for reasons very different than suburbs. Suburbs occur to, to be protective, to be exclusive, to protect homeowner value, 
to maybe exclude certain types of, of population subgroups or to cater to other types, to provide a certain kind of service to a certain kind of taxpaying resident. Um, and the goal for all these municipalities, kind of according to kind of the, the logics of local political economy, is to attract jobs, attract taxpaying residents, and to avoid uh, tax expenditures on redistributive or safety net programs that might be a net drag on the business climate or on the local fiscal environment. And so there's no incentive for places to want to do more poverty programming because they all fear that they'll attract more poor people. And that actually empirically doesn't bear out. Poor people don't move for more generous social programs. They move to find better work, to provide better schools for their kids, to find better neighborhoods, to be closer to family. This is why, is why everybody moves. It's not different for low-income folks. Ellard cautions that for local municipalities and suburbs, ignoring poverty can have real long-term consequences. Poverty isn't a temporary blip in suburban America. The trend has been in firmly in place for many decades, and it's only gotten dramatically worse after the recession, the Great Recession. It's not going anywhere. It's not like the next recovery is going to turn this around. So suburban counties and municipalities have to directly address the need of their residents in a way that they haven't before, and out of the recognition that that is the pathway to greater economic prosperity. And you only have to look at how cities ignored poverty problems in central city areas for decades, uh, and, and not only the, the great, at the great cost of human, human lives and, and, the de- and to devastation of families and neighborhoods, but to a great extent to the devastation of, of urban economies. And it's only in the last 20 or 30 years through gentrification and some other you know, urban redevelopment that things that cities have come back economically. So suburbs have to learn from that and see that not only do they have interest in, in, in terms of kind of a viable, robust economic climate to addressing poverty, ensuring everybody has enough to eat, ensuring families aren't housing unstable, ensuring kids get early childhood care. But suburbs are part of metropolitan regional economies now. Economies aren't as maybe localized or isolated or atomized as they might have been if they ever really were you know, 30, 40 years ago. You know, what happens in metro areas affects everybody. And so part of addressing suburban poverty is also about the shared fate that cities and suburbs have in robust you know, economic growth that transcends individual municipal silos but is good for everybody and good for all communities. If we don't address poverty problems, we can't have that kind of vibrant growth. Many thanks to Scott Allard for sharing this work with us. His book, to be titled Places in Need, The Changing Geography of Poverty and Safety Net Assistance in America, is expected to be published in 2017. You've been listening to the Poverty Research and Policy Podcast from the Institute for Research and Poverty. (laughs) 